Chapter Fourteen of Anna Karenina, Book Seven by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The doctor was not yet up, and the footman said that he had been up late and had given orders not to be waked, but would get up soon. The footman was cleaning the lamp chimneys and seemed very busy about them. This concentration of the footman upon his lamps and his indifference to what was passing in Levin at first astounded him but immediately on considering the question he realized that no one knew, or was bound to know, his feelings, and that it was all the more necessary to act calmly, sensibly, and resolutely, to get through this wall of indifference and attain his aim. "'Don't be in a hurry, or let anything slip,' Levin said to himself, feeling a greater and greater flow of physical energy and attention to all that lay before him to do. Having ascertained that the doctor was not getting up, Levin considered various plans, and decided on the following one, that Kuzma should go for another doctor, while he himself would go to the chemist for opium, and if when he came back the doctor had not yet begun to get up, he would either, by tipping the footman, or by force, wake the doctor at all hazards. At the chemist's, the lank shopman sealed up a packet of powders for a coachman who stood waiting, and refused him opium, with the same callousness with which the doctor's footman had cleaned his lamp chimneys. Trying not to get flurried or out of temper, Levin mentioned the names of the doctor and midwife, and explaining what the opium was needed for, tried to persuade him. The assistant inquired in German whether he should give it, and receiving an affirmative reply from behind the partition, he took out a bottle and a funnel, deliberately poured the opium from a bigger bottle into a little one, stuck on a label, sealed it up, in spite of Levin's request that he would not do so, and was about to wrap it up, too, this was more than Levin could stand. He took the bottle firmly out of his hands, and ran to the big glass doors. The doctor was not even now getting up, and the footman, busy now in putting down the rugs, refused to wake him. Levin deliberately took out a ten-rouble note, and, careful to speak slowly, though losing no time of the business, he handed him the note, and explained that Pyotr Dmitrievich, what a great and important personage he seemed to Levin now, this Pyotr Dmitrievitch, who had been of so little consequence in his eyes before, had promised to come at any time, that he would certainly not be angry, and that he must therefore wake him at once. The footman agreed, and went upstairs, taking Levin into the waiting-room. Levin could hear through the door the doctor coughing, moving about, washing, and saying something. Three minutes passed. It seemed to Levin that more than an hour had gone by, he could not wait any longer. "'Pyotr Dmitrievich, Pyotr Dmitrievich, he said, in an imploring voice, at the open door. "'For God's sake, forgive me. See me as you are. It's been going on for more than two hours already.' "'In a minute, in a minute,' answered a voice, and to his amazement Levin heard that the doctor was smiling as he spoke. "'For one instant.' "'In a minute.' Two minutes more passed while the doctor was putting on his boots and two minutes more while the doctor put on his coat and combed his hair. "'Pyotr Dmitrievich,' Lenin was beginning, again in a plaintive voice, just as the doctor came in, dressed and ready. "'These people have no conscience,' thought Levin, "'combing his hair while we're dying.' "'Good morning,' the doctor said to him, shaking hands and, as it were, teasing him with his composure. "'There's no hurry. Well, now?' Trying to be as accurate as possible, Levin began to tell him every unnecessary detail of his wife's condition, 
interrupting his account repeatedly with entreaties that the doctor would come with him at once. "'Oh, you needn't be in any hurry. You don't understand, you know. I'm certain I'm not wanted. Still, I've promised, and if you like, I'll come. But there's no hurry. Please sit down. Won't you have some coffee?' Levin stared at him with eyes that asked whether he was laughing at him, but the doctor had no notion of making fun of him. "'I know, I know,' the doctor said, smiling. "'I'm a married man myself, and at these moments we husbands are very much to be pitied. I've a patient whose husband always takes refuge in the stables on such occasions.' "'But what do you think, Pyotr Dmitrievich? Do you suppose it may go all right?' "'Everything points to a favorable issue.' "'So you'll come immediately?' said Levin, looking wrathfully at the servant who was bringing in the coffee. "'In an hour's time.' "'Oh, for mercy's sake!' "'Well, let me drink my coffee, anyway.' The doctor started upon his coffee. Both were silent. "'The Turks are really getting beaten, though. Did you read yesterday's telegrams?' said the doctor, munching some roll. "'No, I can't stand it,' said Levin, jumping up. "'So you'll be with us in a quarter of an hour?' "'In half an hour. On your honour. When Levin got home, he drove up at the same time as the princess, and they went up to the bedroom door together. The princess had tears in her eyes, and her hands were shaking. Seeing Levin, she embraced him, and burst into tears. "'Well, my dear Lizaveta Petrovna,' she queried, clasping the hand of the midwife, who came out to meet them with a beaming and anxious face. "'She's going on well,' she said. "'Persuade her to lie down. She will be easier so.' From the moment when he had waked up and understood what was going on, Levin had prepared his mind to bear resolutely what was before him, and without considering, or anticipating anything, to avoid upsetting his wife, and on the contrary to soothe her and keep up her courage. Without allowing himself even to think of what was to come, of how it would end, judging from his inquiries as to the usual duration of these ordeals, Levin had in his imagination braced himself to bear up and to keep a tight rein on his feelings for five hours, and it seemed to him he could do this. But when he came back from the doctor's, and saw her sufferings again, he fell to repeating more and more frequently, Lord, have mercy on us, and succor us. He sighed, and flung his head up, and began to feel afraid he could not bear it, that he would burst into tears, or run away. Such agony it was to him, and only one hour had passed. But after that hour there passed another, two hours, three, the full five hours he had fixed as the furthest limit of his sufferings, and the position was still unchanged, and he was still bearing it because there was nothing to be done but bear it, every instant feeling that he had reached the utmost limits of his endurance, and that his heart would break with sympathy and pain. But still the minutes passed by, and the hours, and still hours more, and his misery and horror grew and were more and more intense. All the ordinary conditions of life, without which one can form no conception of anything, had ceased to exist for Levin. He had lost all sense of time. Minutes, those minutes when she sent for him and he held her moist hand, that would squeeze his hand with extraordinary violence and then push it away, seemed to him hours, and hours seemed to him minutes. He was surprised when Lizaveta Petrovna asked him to light a candle behind the screen, and he found that it was five o'clock in the afternoon. If he had been told it was only ten o'clock in the morning, he would not have been more surprised. Where he was all this time, he knew as little as the time of anything. He saw her swollen face, sometimes bewildered and in agony, 
sometimes smiling and trying to reassure him. He saw the old princess, too, flushed and overwrought, with her grey curls in disorder, forcing herself to gulp down her tears, biting her lips. He saw Dolly, too, and the doctor, smoking fat cigarettes, and Lizaveta Petrovna with a firm, resolute, reassuring face, and the old prince walking up and down the hall with a frowning face. But why they came in and went out, where they were, he did not know. The princess was with the doctor in the bedroom, then in the study, where a table set for dinner suddenly appeared. Then she was not there, but Dolly was. Then Levin remembered he had been sent somewhere. Once he had been sent to move a table and sofa. He had done this eagerly, thinking it had to be done for her sake, and only later on he found it was his own bed he had been getting ready. Then he had been sent to the study to ask the doctor something. The doctor had answered, and then had said something about the irregularities in the municipal council. Then he had been sent to the bedroom to help the old princess to move the holy picture in its silver and gold setting, and with the princess's old waiting-maid he clambered on a shelf to reach it and had broken the little lamp, and the old servant had tried to reassure him about the lamp and about his wife, and he carried the holy picture and set it at Ketty's head, carefully tucking it in behind the pillow. But where, when, and why all this had happened, he could not tell. He did not understand why the old princess took his hand, and looking compassionately at him, begged him not to worry himself, and Dolly persuaded him to eat something, and led him out of the room, and even the doctor looked seriously and with commiseration at him, and offered him a drop of something. All he knew and felt was that what was happening was what had happened nearly a year before in the hotel of the country town at the deathbed of his brother, Nicole. But that had been grief. This was joy. Yet that grief and this joy were alike outside all the ordinary conditions of life. They were loopholes, as it were, in that ordinary life through which there came glimpses of something sublime. And in the contemplation of this sublime something, the soul was exalted to inconceivable heights, of which it had before had no conception, while reason lagged behind, unable to keep up with it. Lord, have mercy on us, and succor us, he repeated to himself incessantly, feeling, in spite of his long and, as it seemed, complete alienation from religion, that he turned to God just as trustfully and simply as he had in his childhood and first youth. All this time he had two distinct spiritual conditions. One was away from her, with the doctor, who kept smoking one fat cigarette after another and extinguishing them on the edge of a full ashtray, with Dolly and with the old prince, where there was talk about dinner, about politics, about Marya Petrovna's illness, and where Levin suddenly forgot for a moment what was happening and felt as though he had waked up from sleep. The other was in her presence, at her pillow, where his heart seemed breaking, and still did not break from sympathetic suffering. And he prayed to God without ceasing, and every time he was brought back from a moment of oblivion by a scream reaching him from the bedroom, he fell into the same strange terror that had come upon him the first minute. Every time he heard a shriek, he jumped up, ran to justify himself, remembered on the way that he was not to blame, and he longed to defend her, to help her. But as he looked at her, he saw again that help was impossible, and he was filled with terror, and prayed, Lord, have mercy on us, and help us. And as time went on, both these conditions became more intense. The calmer he became away from her, completely forgetting her, 
the more agonizing became both her sufferings and his feeling of helplessness before them. He jumped up, would have liked to run away, but ran to her. Sometimes, when again and again she called upon him, he blamed her, but seeing her patient, smiling face, and hearing the words, I am worrying you, he threw the blame on God, but thinking of God, at once he fell to beseeching God to forgive him and have mercy. End of chapter 14